Welcome to the podcast of the universe. Warning. Steve is on his bullshit again. Let's start the show. That's right. It is bullshit, but it's Halloween bullshit. Happy Halloween, everybody. I am Steve. This is Podcast of the Universe. My engineer is Hats. Thank you, Hats, for coming in today. And we have a show today that's basically about murder that happened on Halloween. Um, These murders might have happened any other day, uh, some of them, uh, and these ones just happen to be on Halloween. So all of the crimes I covered um, are pretty much murder. Uh, We'll lighten lighten the mood at the end, and we'll talk about uh, uh, some instances where people died at Halloween attractions, just to you know, lighten things up. I don't want to make light of anyone that had been murdered uh, or enjoy the fact that they're dead and gone. Uh, even if it was 50 years ago, they were people, They their lives were cut short, and I presume that people mourned their loss. But I am going to talk about it for about an hour maybe. So we're going to cover a few different stories on people who uh, committed crimes on Halloween, basically uh, murdered people on Halloween, and... I, I didn't want to cover any of the uh, crimes that involved, uh, you know, sex crimes. So I didn't want a sex crimes podcast. So I skipped all that. doesn't sound fun, does it? There's a lot of crime, like true crime podcast and like murder podcast. Uh, there probably isn't a sex crime podcast. If there is, they should be on a list. Anyway, something that came in the news yesterday or today. Maybe this morning or late last night. It doesn't matter. In Florida, they arrested two girls. One was 11, one was 12. They went to their school with knives, and they wanted to kill some people. So they went into the bathroom, and their plan was to wait for younger students to go into the bathroom. They would kill them, uh, stab them with knives, drain their blood into a goblet that they brought a goblet and four knives and a knife sharpener. There was another mystery item that they brought. I'll get to that in a moment. So they brought the knives and the knife sharpener and the goblet, and they were like, we're going to kill these people. We're going to cut their throats, catch the blood in the goblet, drink the goblet. And then like, if we can kill like 15 to 25, then we'll kill ourselves. We'll go to hell and we'll meet Satan. And they're going to pad their record by all, with all these murders. But the, uh, they were caught by adults, luckily. So no children were actually hurt. And now they were arrested and they're deciding if they will be tried as adult, as a adults or not. The mystery item that they brought was very confusing was they brought a pizza cutter. What are you going to do with a pizza cutter and a murder? I've had multiple pizza cutters throughout my life. And none that I would ever grab for the purposes of a crime. Anyway, uh, that's some interesting news. That came out of Florida, so keep your eye on the news for that and see what see what the fate is of those young women. Uh, which is a shame, uh, but I am glad that uh, uh, no... No uh, other kids were hurt, and uh, maybe those kids won't go outside or be unsupervised again. So, uh, Also, another important item is uh, my Monster Cereal. So I, I just got Monster Cereal, I think, within like the last weeks, say, say in the last week. So I've been pretty patient. I roll into the grocery store, uh, Sobeys or Superstore, and look around, couldn't find it. And I started to get a little worried. I was like, it's halfway through the month. I don't have my monster cereal yet. And I love, love, love my monster cereal. So no Count Chocula, no Booberry. So last weekend, I tweeted Sobeys and I said, 
Where's the monster cereal? I haven't found any yet. So they didn't tweet me back. So the next day I tweeted, I added to my to my tweet of uh, an impatient gif of a lizard rocking in a chair, staring at the camera. Monday rolls around and they they tweet me and say, "Hey, well, which ones were you looking for and at which at which stores?" And I said, "Count Chocula, Booberry, any store in Saint John." They write back to me a few later and a few hours later and say. We don't have any of these. There, There's none in the city. And I was just gutted. It's one of my favorite things about Halloween is the monster cereal. And they should sell it all year round. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with them. Why would you not sell Count Chocula all year round? Do you not want my money? Is my money no good here? That you're going to tell me that I can buy it one month a year? One month out of 12 months of the year, I can buy Count Chocula. You'll allow me to buy it one month of the year. I, it's so stupid. So anyway, I go to a Superstore. I go through the front of the store, and they have just a bin of Count Chocula. So I grabbed an armful of it, like multiple boxes. I also grabbed some of the Reese's Pieces with the marshmallow bats. So I was happy, but I didn't have Booberry. I just had Count Chocula. So... I kept checking the grocery stores. Every time I go to a grocery store, I go to the cereal aisle and where they have the Halloween stuff and look around. And then I go to Sobeys over east side. They've told me they've called all the stores. They're not getting any more in and it's all gone. I go into Sobeys on the east side. They have a giant wall because I get a hot tip. They have a giant wall of blueberry, Count Chocula. So I got a bunch of blueberry, which I can also only buy one month of the year. <clears throat> Because I, I'm not to be trusted, I guess, having the cereal all year round. I'm only allotted one month of the year that I can buy this. It's foolish. So anyway, I got lots of monster cereal, so good for me. I'm going to cut the faces out of the back and make little masks out of them too. In fact, I already did because I worked overnight the other day and took a picture of myself. It says, take a picture of yourself wearing the mask. Use the hashtag... Uh, monster mask, get your parents to take the picture. While I was working, it was 3 in the morning, and I'm 36 years old. I don't need my parents' permission. I'm 37. That's a lie. I just realized that. Wow, that's depressing. 37, complaining to complete strangers about uh, the state of monster cereals. But it's an important, it's an important topic for me. So... Let's get on with the show and talk about some murder. That's always fun. And we're not going to talk about any sex crimes. So, But there will be murder. Um, so the first one. So this was in 1957 in Los Angeles. It was on Halloween night. So there was a beauty shop owner. His name was Peter Fabiano and his wife Betty. They were turning all their lights out in their home to go to the bed, uh, and the doorbell rings. Mr. Fabiano goes downstairs to answer the door, thinking it might be a late trick-or-treater. His wife, Mrs. Fabiano, was still upstairs. Her husband asked, Isn't it late for this sort of thing? There was a muffled reply, followed by a loud pop, and then a thump. As Betty ran downstairs, she heard the squeal of tires on pavement as the vehicle sped off. She found her husband sprawled on the floor, bleeding from a gunshot wound to the chest. Uh, 
Mrs. Fabiano called for help, but unfortunately her husband died on the way to the hospital. So it took, it took investigators nearly two weeks to identify a person of interest in the case. The person they named was Joan Rabel, who at one time worked for Mr. Fabiano in his beauty shop. Rabel had become good friends with Mrs. Fabiano, and Betty even lived with Rabel, or sorry, Rabel for a short time during which she was having problems in her marriage. Mr. Fabiano became jealous of the relationship between the two women. He ultimately decided to work things out with Betty, but there were conditions that had to be agreed to. Betty was never to see Rabel again and not to even say her name in Mr. Fabiano's presence. Rabel was arrested under suspicion that she killed Mr. Fabiano because she wasn't too keen on the demands he made that kept her from seeing Betty. Rabel denied any involvement, saying that she was home the whole night and her car in her driveway was proof of that. This was a partial truth. In fact, her car was in her driveway the entire night, but not after interviewing her acquaintances. Detectives learned that she was most definitely not at home. A friend of hers told investigators that she and Rabel, uh, that she had let Rabel borrow her car that night for around 37 miles were put on it. When caught in the lie, Rabel admitted that she did borrow the car to get groceries. With no hard evidence to go on, the police had to let Rabel go. A month later, an anonymous tip was called about a lockbox in a department store that should be checked. When officials followed up on the tip, they found a 38 caliber gun, which ballistics later confirmed matched the weapon used to kill Mr. Fabiano. Upon further investigation of sales records at the local gun shops, they found that the gun belonged to Goldine Pizer, a lab technician at a Los Angeles Children's Hospital. Pizer was a meek woman and almost immediately confessed to the shooting. She insisted that it wasn't her fault, however, and that someone had put her under a spell. That person would turn out to be none other than Joan Rabel. Rabel and Pizer had been good friends, possibly lovers, for a few years. Rabel would always tell Pizer what an awful person Peter Fabiano was. It became an obsession and their favorite topic of conversation. Though Pizer didn't know Mr. Fabiano herself, she began to hate him. Talk of murder began uh, between the two, and Rabel gave uh, Pizer the money to buy a gun. The night of the murder, Pizer attempted to disguise herself, wearing a hat, gloves, mask, and face paint with a gun hidden in a paper bag. It was Halloween and wouldn't look suspicious at all to anyone who may see her. Rabel and Pizer arrived at the Fabiano house around 9, sat outside waiting for hours for the lights to be turned off inside the house to make their move. Pizer went to the door when Rabel waited in the car. After the deed was done, Pizer ran back to the car, and when she got inside, Rabel kissed her and said thank you. After dropping the car off, Rabel told Pizer, forget you ever knew me. The pair walked in different directions. Rabel pleaded not guilty. Pizer claimed insanity. In the end, they each accepted a plea deal for second-degree murder and were sentenced to life in prison. Our next story takes place in 1974. On a rainy Halloween night, the children of Deer Park, Texas were out knocking on doors. Ronald Clark O'Brien, an optician, was out too watching over his kids. Eight-year-old Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth as they trick-or-treated in a suburban neighborhood near their home. Joining them was O'Brien's neighbor, Jim Bates, and his young son. One of the houses the group approached had all of its lights switched off, but the kids banged on the door anyway. The vague promise of candy was too enticing. There was no answer. Either the occupants were hiding or no one was home. Uh, growing impatient, the kids ran off to find another house, and Jim followed. 
Ronald was left alone. Catching up with the others a short while later, Ronald had good news. He produced a handful of 21-inch stick, sorry, 21-inch pixie sticks tubes of powdered sour candy. Turns out someone had been in the dark house all along. The sweets were handed out, one to each of the children there, one for Jim's other child, and another to a 10-year-old boy Ronald had recognized from a church as the group walked home. Before bed, Timothy O'Brien was allowed one treat from the evening's hall and picked his pixie stick tube, but the powdered sugar was stuck in the straw, and it wasn't until his dad helped him dislodge it so he could take his first mouthful. It tasted bitter, he complained, so Ronald grabbed him a glass of Kool-Aid to wash the taste away. Less than an hour later, Timothy was dead. It was just a coincidence that I was working the police intake that night, says former Harris County Prosecutor Mike. Decades, decades later on the phone from Houston, I got a call from the Pasadena Police Department. They told me an eight-year-old boy had died. He was rushed to the hospital, but he had already passed. Wanting to get his investigation underway, Hinton called Dr. Joseph A. Yakimczyk, uh, chief medical examiner of Harris County, which was nearby. I told him the situation, and he asked what the young man's breath smelled like, Hinton said. A call to the morgue revealed there was, more, there was a scent of almonds coming from the boy's mouth. It's cyanide, said Dr. Yakimik. An autopsy proved the medical examiner's hunch. A pathologist said Timothy had consumed enough cyanide to kill two people. Tests later found that the top two inches of the pixie sticks had been packed with the poison. Police officers managed to recover the remaining sweets from the other children before any of them had a chance to dig in, and noted whoever was responsible had used stables to seal the pixie sticks after tampering with them. That's what saved another boy's life that night, Hinton recalls. They found him in bed with a sweet in his hand, but he wasn't strong enough to undo the staples. The police took Ronald back to the neighborhood the group had been trick-or-treating in so he could direct them to the house where he'd picked up the pixie sticks. But he was stumped. He just couldn't find the house. And said he'd never seen the face of the person responsible, that they had just emerged from a doorway and handed him candy. Investigators started to become suspicious. A few days went by and it was incredibly frustrating, says Hinton. So they took O'Brien out again and they were pretty firm with him. The tactic worked. Ronald's memory was jogged. He pointed towards the house. The man who lived there wasn't home, so officers went to his place of work, Houston's William Hobby P. Airport, and arrested him in front of his colleagues. The mystery was over. Case closed. Only the man had an alibi. It turned out he was working that night. His wife and daughter were home and had turned out the lights early as they'd run out of candy. Colleagues and timesheets confirmed the man's story. This only magnified my suspicion, says Hinton. I'd also heard O'Brien was angry at his relatives for not staying up the night of Timothy's funeral, which was odd. Ronald, as it transpires, had written a song about Jesus, and Timothy joining the Lord in heaven had grown agitated when his grieving family wouldn't stay up late to watch a recording of the performance being broadcast on television. Something strange was going on, says Hinton. Soon after he was teaching a class at the Pasadena Police Academy, detectives arrived at Hinton's door. They discovered that Ronald had recently taken out a life insurance policy on both of his children, 10000 per child in January of that year, and then a further 20000 each a month before Halloween. Investigators already knew Ronald owed debts of over 100000 so when they found out he called his insurer's task about a payout at 9 a.m. the morning after Timothy's death, it was a clear case against him. And it was beginning to come again. It was beginning to come together. And granted a warrant, a search of the O'Brien house offered up a pair of scissors with plastic residue attached, which was similar to that found on the cyanide lace sweets. O'Brien was arrested and taken in for questioning. 
As the investigation continued, says Hinton, the evidence started to stack up against Ronald. It turned out O'Brien was going to community college and in class would ask his professor questions like, What is more lethal, cyanide or another type of poison, says Hinton. Why would someone ask that? Another witness who worked for a chemical company in Houston told police a man had come in to buy cyanide, but left after being told the smallest amount he could buy was five pounds. The man from the store said he couldn't identify O'Brien, but remembered that his customer was wearing a beige or blue smock like a doctor. O'Brien was an optician. That was exactly the uniform he wore to work. Still, this was years before DNA testing and contactless debit cards, and police couldn't put the pixie sticks in Ronald's hands or prove he had bought any cyanide so the 30-year-old optician maintained his innocence. and remembers the case vividly in the decades that have passed. His memories have remained sharp. O'Brien adored the attention, he says. I think he even loved it during his trial. Ronald entered a not-guilty plea with his defense blaming the tainted candy on some untraceable boogeyman, a sick individual using the cover of Halloween to poison unsuspecting children. But friends, family, and co-workers all testified against the man the press is now calling the candy man. And on June 3, 1975, it took just 46 minutes for a jury to return a guilty verdict for one charge of capital murder and four accounts of attempted murder. An hour later, it was decided that Ronald would be executed by the electric chair. Ronald Clark O'Brien's appeal avenues were explored and turned down for nearly a decade after his guilty verdict, so it wasn't until March 31, 1984, when all routes to survival had been exhausted, and he was finally put to death for his crime. By this point, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled the electric chair a cruel and unusual punishment, so his life was ended with a lethal injection. Outside the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, a crowd of around 300 people gathered to hear if the man, the Halloween poisoner, had met his end, shouting trick-or-treat and throwing candy at anti-death penalty protesters. At 12.48 a.m., when Ronald was pronounced dead, Hinton was in his childhood home in Amarillo, an eight-hour drive from Huntsville. That evening, he'd gone to his favorite lake fishing rod in hand, and drank a beer in celebration as he drifted out into the darkness. And also, since the Deer Park poisoning, rumors of dodgy sweets being handed out have always surfaced around Halloween. But whether the fear is that the candy contains broken glass or razor blades, or that they're actually ecstasy pills, there's not much evidence to suggest parents actually have anything to worry about. In 2000, a man in Minneapolis was charged with with putting needles in Snickers that he had handed out to the trick-or-treaters, but the only victim he claimed was a teenager who got a slight prick from the hidden sharp object. Since Timothy O'Brien, there hasn't been a single case where a child has actually died after consuming contaminated Halloween treats. In our next story, we learn about a Jersey Shore thrill killer, Richard Beigenwald. When Maria Chiala, 17, set out on the evening of October 31st, 1981. It was likely she was going to run into all manner of ghosts, goblins, and ghouls, all in the spirit of Halloween. But Maria never dreamed she was about to encounter a real-life monster. Around 6 p.m., the bright, athletic high school student told her father she was going out and would return around midnight. Soon after the clock struck 12, she was seen walking around Route 88 toward her home in Brook, New Jersey. A patrolman on a radio call spotted her and made a mental note to offer her a lift on his return. He was back within ten minutes, but by that time the girl had vanished like a ghost in the night. It would be a year and a half before anyone would find out what became of her on that Halloween night. The Daily News front page read, Dig up two bodies linked to three others on April 20th, 1983. Police found Maria Cagella's 
corpse cut into three pieces and buried in the yard of a rundown blue house in the Charleston section of Staten Island. She was not alone. The shallow grave held the remains of another girl, Deborah Osborne, who was 17. She had disappeared from Point Pleasant, New Jersey Bar the previous April. The house had belonged to a bewildered elderly woman, Sally Bigenwald, 68, mother of the key suspect in the killings of the two girls, as well as three other murders in New Jersey. Her son Richard, who was 42, had been in trouble since he was five, but she still stood behind him. As backhoes dug up her yard, and investigators swarmed all over, she poured her heart, <clears throat> she poured her heart out to reporters from the news. Only God in heaven knows what he's done or the reasons for it, but he is still my son, and I will care for him and visit him. I guess that that's what they mean by a mother's love. Over the years, that love had been tested many times. Her husband, Alfred, was a bitter, abusive alcoholic, and her boy, Richard, was a demon from day one. At the tender age of five, he tried to set fire to the family's Rockland County home and landed in a psychiatric hospital for troubled kids. His childhood was one reform school after another, but none did much good. Bigenwald became wilder and more dangerous with each passing year. In 1955, at 15, he was set loose and sent back to the bosom of his family, which now included only his mom, who had divorced her ornery mate and moved to Staten Island. Bigenwald enrolled in high school, but nothing in the standard curriculum piqued his curiosity. He was more interested in pursuing higher learning and the art of crime, robbery, and car theft to start. Within three years, he graduated to murder. On December 18, 1958, the terrible teen stole a car in Staten Island and with the another young thug, James Sparnroft, who was 18, stopped at Bayonne, New Jersey, Delhi. Behind the counter was Stephen Sladowski, aged 47. Sladowski's day job was Bayonne's assistant municipal attorney, but he was moonlighting as a clerk in the store he bought for his wife four months earlier. Bigenwald entered the store, leaving his accomplice in the car. Moments later, there was a gunshot and Bigenwald bolted from the store and into the car yelling, let's get out of here. Police caught the fugitives in Maryland after a gun battle. Bigenwald was found guilty of murdering Sladowski with a bullet to his chest and was sentenced to life in prison. Seventeen years later, he was out on parole. He made some half-hearted attempts at a normal life, including wooing and marrying a pretty young woman, Diane Marcellis, over the violent objections of her father and trying his hand at honest work. Old habits died hard. By 1981, he had reconnected with the jailhouse buddy, Darren Fitzgerald, 52, and began raising hell again. Just how much hell would not be known until June, I'm sorry, until January 14th, 1983, when two boys spotted a body in the underbrush behind a Burger King in Ocean Township. It was Anna Oliswitz, an 18-year-old who on August 28, 1982, had gone looking for fun on the Asbury boardwalk and disappeared. She had been shot four times in the head. Working on a tip, police ended up in the Asbury Park house, accompanied by Bigenwald and his wife, and Fitzgerald. Police snagged Fitzgerald first, and he readily told all, pointing to the locations of two more bodies in Jersey, Betsy Bacon, 17, who had disappeared on November 20, 1982, and William J. Ward, 34, a drug dealer who vanished in September 1982. Finally, Fitzgerald brought investigators to Sally Bigenwald's backyard and the bodies of Siachella and Osborne. Police said that Fitzgerald had finked on his old jailhouse pal because Bigenwald had killed his pet cat. Fitzgerald became the key witness for the prosecution when on November 28, 1983, Bigenwald's trial opened for the murder 
of Oleswitz, one of the five people he was accused of killing. The prosecutor maintained that the motive was simply that Beigenwald wanted to see someone die. He became known as the Jersey Shore Thrill Killer. After five hours of deliberation, the jury voted guilty, and after six and a half more hours, chose a sentence of death by lethal injection. In February 1984, a second jury found him guilty of Ward's murder, but deadlocked on the question of death or life sentence. The judge gave him life. In September, he pleaded guilty to the murders of Chiella and Osborne and got two more 30-year prison terms. The cooperative Fitzgerald got off with five years. Then the appeals began. Beigenwald's first death sentence was overturned, but in January 1989, a new jury again sentenced him to death. The case became a flashpoint for controversy over the death penalty, and his case made it to the Supreme Court. In, 1980, in August 1991, the sentence was again overturned, and Beigenwald was tucked away in New Jersey State Prison. This time, the monster stayed inside the box until he died at age 67 of natural causes on March 10, 2008. This next story takes place in 2004. In the early mornings after Halloween 2004, the intruder outside Leslie Mazzara and Adrienne in Saga's Napa Valley, California house smoked three cigarettes while waiting for the right moment. Dropping the butts outside, cops say he then shimmied through an unlocked window, slashed both women to death with a knife. The grisly murders shocked residents of the genteel gateway to wine country. The two women were well-liked and outgoing, and there had not been a murder in the town for four years. Residents began bolting their doors, and some even sold their homes. The killings affected everyone, says one local. It was like a Halloween movie come true. For nearly a year, police interviewed 1,300 people and took 218 DNA samples, but made no arrests. On September 27th, however, police caught a break. Eric Koppel, the husband of one of Insogna's best friends, turned himself in. Napa Police Chief Rich Melton said detectives had been convinced all along that the crime was not random, but they only had recently begun focusing on Koppel. They had tried to interview him several times in the last few months, but he wouldn't cooperate. It became apparent he did not want to talk to us, says Melton. The break in the case came on September 22nd, when police announced the killer smoked Camel Turkish Gold Cigarettes, Koppel's brand. Melton said Koppel, fearing capture, allegedly confessed to its family, who then called authorities. Mazzara, 26, was a South Carolina native and former beauty queen who moved to Napa in 2004 to be close to her mother. She worked at a winery near Rutherford. She had such a bubbly personality. When she was happy, every, everyone around was happy, says Renee Tollison, who knew Mazzara through pageants. During the summer of 2004, Mazzara moved in with Insogna, 26, and another young woman. An avid volleyball and softball player, Insanga 26, was a fiercely competitive type who nearly died in an auto accident when she was 16. Left with short-term memory loss, she initially struggled just to read, but eventually won a college scholarship. She landed a job at the Napa Sanitation District, where she worked as a civil engineer. While there, she became fast friends with a co-worker, Lily Prudhomme, Koppel's future wife. The friendship, cops now believe, may have sealed her fate. Police say that around 2 a.m. last November 1st, Koppel attacked Mazzara in her second-floor bedroom and that Insogna, hearing the screams, rushed in and scratched and cut Koppel, leaving his blood at the scene before he overpowered her. The third housemate, whose name hasn't been released, escaped from her first-floor bedroom and called police. Police have not given a, modem for, a motive for the murders or even revealed whether Koppel knew Mazzara. 
In Conville 26 does not have a criminal record. Eric didn't seem stressed or depressed as a family friend. He was just a normal guy. Two weeks after the murders, Lily organized a vigil for her dead friends. Then at her February wedding to Copple, she asked Arlene Allen and Sagna's mum to read from the Bible. I looked directly into both of their eyes and read, Love is stronger than death and passion fierce as the grave, says Allen. I know Lily picked those verses in honor of Adrian. As much grief as she feels, Allen also feels sympathy for the murderous hidden, hidden victims. It's just so sad and shocking the husband of my daughter's dear friend Lily committed these crimes. My heart goes out to Lily and her family and Eric's too. So that's pretty, that's pretty dark. He, he killed the woman's daughter and then had that woman read scripture at his wedding. Oof. So after Eric Koppel had pled guilty to both murders, he agreed to take a lifetime prison sentence without the possibility of parole uh, in exchange for the death penalty for being taken off the table. He offered this in court. I am a broken man. I cannot fathom any explanation for my sinful deeds. The terrible agony inflicted upon a great number of people. Words evade me. So, they were speculation that he was uh, jealous of a cl close friendship that his, uh, his girlfriend had had, at the time had, with the victims, but it was never clear, so... In 2007, he was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. This will be the last one, and it's, uh, it's a little long. Devin Griffin returned home on October 31st after singing in his Sunday morning church service. The 16-year-old trudged up to his room to play video games. At 1.30 p.m., he began to wonder why nobody was around. His mother, Susan Liskey, 46, would normally be out of bed by then. And where was the rest of his family? Devin went downstairs to the master bedroom and found his mom in bed next to his stepfather, William Liskey, 53. The maroon comforter was pulled up over their heads. Devin started talking to wake his mom. He walked over to her side of the bed and saw her foot jutting out from beneath the covers. He tapped her on the leg, no response. Devin continued to talk to Susan, pulling the covers down a little. That's when he saw her pillow soaked with blood. For a moment, he thought this must be a Halloween prank, but slowly he realized it wasn't. The young man wept as he ran from the room and out of the house. New investigative reports fi filed in the triple homicide against William B.J. Liskey, 24, had shone a light on the events leading up to the murders. The documents also reveal a glimpse into the family struggles with B.J. Liskey and of his father's attempts to love him despite the boy's moody and violent behavior. B.J. Liskey is accused of murdering his father, stepmother, and stepbrother Derek Griffin, who was 23. As early as 2002, Bill Liskey called law enforcement because his then 16-year-old son, B.J. Liskey, threatened to harm himself. The boy was on house arrest at the time. According to police records, B.J. Liskey attacked the officers when they arrived and faced charges in juvenile court of assaulting a peace officer. Then in October 2004, B.J. got into a fight with his, step with his stepmother and struck her hard in the chest. Two months later, police charged him with felonious assault and robbery for allegedly hitting Susan Liskey with a coffee cup and stealing her car keys. He was found incompetent to stand trial on those charges, which were eventually dropped. BJ had at least three encounters with police after he moved to a Sandusky group home for mental health patients. Among those incidents was a physical fight between BJ and his dad after Bill picked him up from the group home. After the triple homicide, friends and family members told authorities about other violent outbursts. 
Bill kicked his son out of the house after BJ, who was then 18, attempted to attack Susan as she showered. The younger Lisky had a strained relationship with his stepmother from the start. After his parents divorced, BJ started skipping school and misbehaving, neighbors said. When Bill and Susan married in 2001, Susan attempted to impose order in the house. Her stepson resented the new rules. Investigators who interviewed family friend Mark Gradle wrote in a report that Bill often called Mark to help if BJ caused problems. Bill would say, hey, come over, it's BJ, or BJ is getting goofy. But on at least one occasion, Derek called Mark because BJ and Bill were physically fighting. Despite the fights, Bill never gave up on his son. In February 2006, he filed for guardianship over BJ. According to court records, the 18-year-old had been hospitalized in 2007 for schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. Mr. Liskey wants to protect William and to get him the help that he needs, the guardianship application states. He would eventually like to see him get in a halfway house or a group home. When William is on his medication, he does really good. After a while, he stops taking it because he thinks he's okay, starts drinking and smoking pot. After BJ moved into the halfway house in Sandusky, Bill visited often. The week before the murder, his gradle told investors, investigators that Bill Liskey took some vacation time and went deer hunting with his son. They went to the family's hunting cabin in the Carroll County and returned to the Ottawa County less than 24 hours before the murders. Cradle said he had serious talks with Bill Liskey on a few occasions about the family's safety being jeopardized by BJ. Neighbors suspected the younger Liskey of killing and torturing their pets. The Gradle's dog was shot twice with twenty-two caliber bullets. But Bill would tell Gradle, BJ won't hurt us, investigators wrote. Mark said it was a hard conversation to have because BJ was Billy's only son and Bill would never see the bad even though Bill had received physical injuries from BJ, investigators wrote. After Bill and his son returned home from hunting that Saturday before Halloween, they got together for a few beers with friends. Gradle, who was at the gathering, told investigators everyone had a good time. He didn't see Derek Griffin, Susan's 23-year-old son, but that was not unusual because he and BJ did not get along. BJ rarely spent the night at the house because of the past violent fights between him and the rest of the family, but Bill had been drinking, however, and didn't think it was a good idea to drive his son back to Sandusky. The party broke up at about midnight. When investigators searched the house, they found a bed made up on the living room sofa, apparently for BJ. Gradle's wife, Michelle, told investigators she heard what sounded like gunshots at about 6.30 a.m. October 31st. According to phone records, Derek Griffin last spoke to someone at 2.02 p.m. on October 30th. Derek's brother, Devon, spent the weekend with his dad and came home at about 9.30 a.m. on October 31st to change his shirt for church. He told investigators he encountered only B.J. Liskey when he came home for the first time that morning. He changed and left in about five minutes. B.J. uncharacteristically asked him what he was doing and how long he'd be gone, investigators wrote. Devon said he couldn't think of anything else that was said, but stated B.J. was acting happier, investigators wrote. To explain, Devon said that normally B.J. is gloomy. I asked Devon what made him think B.J. was acting happier. Devon stated that it was because he was happier, more upbeat, and more talkative. Devon stated that B.J. is normally slow and darkish. After Devon Griffin left the house for church, B.J. took the family's Ford F-150 and drove it to the hunting cabin in Carroll County. He was there less than an hour when the Carroll County Sheriff's deputies descended upon the camp and took him into custody. Back home, Ottawa County authorities discovered the extent of the grisly crime scene. Devon's aunt, Lori Morris, called them to the rural home that sits about on 100 acres. Her nephew had called her in a panic about what he saw, and she went to the house to console him and call authorities. Investigators found that Bill and Susan Liskey were shot to death in their bed.
According to the coroner reports, Bill Liskey was shot five times in the head and face at a range of about one to two feet. He was lying in a natural sleeping position and had the covers pulled up over him. Susan was sprawled more awkwardly, as if she might have been moved, investigators wrote. She was shot three times, again at what investigators suspect was close range. The bullets were small caliber, likely a twenty-two. Upstairs they found Derek Griffin's room locked. Police kicked in the door and found the young man curled in the bed, facing the wall. According to the coroner's findings, he suffered a blunt force trauma to the head and most likely died within a few minutes of the first blow. Investigators found a bloody claw hammer in the house, which coroners found to be consistent with Derek Griffin's wounds. The weapon and other evidence from around the home were sent to Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation for Forensic Testing. Devon Griffin told investigators the family owned lots of guns, many of which authorities seized for testing. They found muddy footprints along the deck near the family's pond, suggesting the suspect may have disposed the murder weapon in the pond. Authorities drained the pond but found no gun. Weapon-sniffing dogs tracked much of the property and found nothing. When detectives from the Ottawa County Sheriff's Office went to the Carroll County cabin to look for evidence, they found an uneaten Subway sandwich on the counter. BJ apparently didn't have time to eat before deputies burst in on October 31st. The detectives obtained a security video from a Subway restaurant near the camp showing Liskey purchasing the sandwich. Without shedding a tear, William B.J. Liskey told a courtroom filled with those who knew and loved his father, stepmother, and stepbrother that he could not explain why he brutally murdered them last October. I love my dad very much, and it makes me feel very sick every time I think about what I did, Liskey, 25, said. I can't really explain why this all had to happen, but I think most of it had to do with my mental illness. Ottawa County Common Pleas Judge Bruce Winters uh, accepted guilty pleas from Liskey for three counts of aggravated murder, sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the deaths of William E. Liskey, Jr., 53, Susan Liskey, 46, and her son, Derek Griffin, 23. The court is not in a position to make this whole. It is not in a position to bring back loved ones. The court can only hope to do justice, Judge Winters said before imposing the sentence. Prosecutors and defense attorneys had agreed to recommend that Liskey spend the rest of his life in prison in exchange for guilty pleas to three of the six counts of aggravated murder he had faced. The court dismissed specifications that could have resulted in sentencing Liskey to death. Ottawa County Prosecutor Mark Mulligan said afterward that more than enough physical evidence existed to convict Liskey and justify imposition of the death penalty, but he suspects that because of Liskey's young age and relatively long history of mental illness, his case would have been tied up in the appeals process for years to come. It seemed to me to be the best resolution of the case, Mr. Mulligan said. I think justice was done. Defense attorney Adrian Zimmerman said Liskey was declared legally sane but clearly mentally ill. He said it's unknown whether Liskey was taking the medication that was prescribed for his schizoaffective disorder on the night of the murders, although he had been drinking al alcohol. And when B.J. Liskey was reading his statement, uh, he lost his place, uh, repeated his words, uh, apologized to those he had hurt, uh, made references to Satan, uh, who was, in quotes, working for the destruction of our souls, and said he was praying uh, every day for those involved. Um, he said it wasn't because of Sue or Derek or even my father. I believe it was an internal struggle with my mental illness. And Mr. Mulligan, his lawyer, said afterwards he was impressed with BJ uh, for taking as much responsibility as he did. So... Um, he said, I think that that meant a lot to the family. I'm sure it didn't answer their questions about why, because how can there ever be a logical answer as to why this happened? But I think it went a long way to give them something of an explanation. Now the murders are over, but there are some more deaths and Halloween to cover. 
In September 1957, a small farming community of Utica, Kansas, local parents and school officials were growing worried about the extent to which the high school seniors were hazing the incoming freshmen. Annual gymnasium parties commemorating the new pupils had resulted in too much roughhousing, so English teacher Betty Stevens and Principal William Hobart and Sally devised something different for their students. Mrs. Stevens led her charges to an abandoned farmhouse a couple of miles outside of town. Her and some other school staff had decorated the dilapidated home as a haunted house for a pre-Halloween party. The centerpiece was Principal Saley, who would pretend to be hanging in the middle of the dark room covered in grease paint and ketchup to simulate blood. The students did indeed get a kick out of the moaning, limply hanging principal. Saley had turned in what appeared to be a masterful performance, but when Mrs. Stevens returned uh, to get a picture of Saley, she made a shocking discovery. He had slipped, causing the noose to tighten on his neck. The moaning and struggling principal hadn't been acting at all. The students actually witnessed the slow, painful death of Mr. Saley. Another fake hanging gone wrong. On October 20, 1990, 17-year-old Brian Jewell was working at a Lakewood, New Jersey haunted hayride, performing a stunt he had done several times before. In the act, he would simulate hanging himself with a fake noose by stepping off a platform and secretly putting one foot on the ground, out of view of the audience. That night, however, the noose, which was designed not to tighten, inexplic inexplicably choked and killed Jewel when he stepped off the platform. Forty people unwittingly saw a real hanging corpse, as the hayride operator only became concerned later when it dawned on him that Jewel had not delivered his usual scripted speech. Now, this one isn't a Halloween death, but... Well, here we go. In 2012, in the early hours of the morning after Halloween, a tutu-clad Marine spotted a uniform-clad man in a wheelchair and thought the man's costume was a weak attempt at mocking the military. So he attacked him. As the, <clears throat> as the Marine learned upon his arrest, the man's wardrobe was not a comment on our servicemen and women. He was, in fact, a disabled veteran. Let's finish this podcast with the grand finale. On Halloween night, the Indiana State Fairgrounds Coliseum hosted a Holiday on Ice skating exhibition. Unbeknownst to the attendees, a propane tank leaked through the entire performance, filling the unventilated room with doom. As the skaters prepared for their pinwheel finale, the gas made its way to an electric popcorn machine, igniting a massive explosion, killing 75 people. The scene was considered by the fire marshal to be the most gruesome event the town had ever seen. When the gas ignited, a blast of orange flame shot 40 feet up through the south side seats, Catapulting people in chairs through the air, concrete chunks and body parts rained down. 54 people were killed on scene, and another 20 died later of their injuries. Rescuers used, used the nearby cattle barn as a temporary hospital, and the coroner's office set up a temporary morgue on the ice floor. The dead were placed on plywood and lined up on the ice, according to gender and age. Family members who came to identify loved ones had to register at the administration building before being led to the Coliseum. A Marion, a Marion County grand jury indicted the state fire marshal, the Indianapolis fire chief, the general manager, and the concessions manager of the Coliseum, as well as the officers of the company that supplied the gas. But there was only one conviction, the president of the gas supplier, and that verdict was later overturned by the Indiana Supreme Court. According to the Encyclopedia of Indianapolis, victims and survivors ultimately received about $4.6 million in settlements. In 1991, the Coliseum acquired a sponsorship and was renamed Pepsi Coliseum. However, that sponsorship was not renewed in 2012. It is now known as the Indiana Farmers Coliseum. 
the Coliseum underwent a $63 million renovation, which was completed in 2014. So that'll do it for this episode. This is the first annual Halloween special, colon, murder extravaganza. Now, not every year will be about murder, but this year is. So, uh, it is now October the 28th, and I had to do this over a few days, and uh, I've been pretty busy lately. So yesterday, uh, we had the Jermaine Street Open where you dress up as a um, theme. You have a group of four people. Our theme was Bob's Burgers. Uh, and then you go, I think there were 11 holes yesterday. You just go to restaurants and private homes, and they have mini golf set up there. And there's free drinks at each hole. So there's tequila and sangria and beer. So uh, we won again for uh, top earning, which means we won um, some hats. And um, it's like Trigo. So we can all go to Trigo. I forget what it's called here in St. John, though, but basically it's like an obstacle course in the trees with like uh, zip lines and stuff. So that's exciting. I was uh, happy to be a part of that again this year. Um, so this weekend, uh, we had our friend's kids uh, for Thursday and Friday night. And on Friday, we carved pumpkins. I was very pleased with my pumpkin. And uh, there's pictures of it you can see on the Twitter on This Is Po 2. And you'll see a tweet where I implore the mayor to fix our deer, our deer problem. So my pumpkin was out for mere hours, and the deer came up on the deck and ate the teeth out of the pumpkin. Uh, the deer are pretty bold now. Um, they didn't really care like years before, but this year they really don't care. Uh, they don't care if you go blow an air horn. I did it again today because they were uh, eating my neighbor's bushes and trying to get at his uh, birdhouse or bird feeder. So anyway, they ruined my pumpkin, so I'm pretty upset about that. Um, but I have recovered from uh, the Jermaine Street Open. I've had Motrin. I've had G2. Uh, my body feels pure again. The headache's gone. And it wasn't it wasn't awful, but I woke up at 1.45 a.m. thinking it was Sunday morning, like later Sunday morning, uh, and feeling like all kinds of hungover. And I looked at the clock, and I was like, oh, it's, it's, only, it's not even 2 a.m. yet. I was up for a little bit, and then I eventually fell back to sleep. So, back to work tomorrow. So this has been uh, my Halloween podcast. The next episode will be cannibalism. Uh, I do have a subject where I don't think I will have like a 45-minute show. Um, so I may do mini-episodes. I think that would be a fun idea too. So uh, there's a fun idea um, that I've been hanging on to that I'd like to do a brief a brief show on. Uh, but the next uh, big podcast will be cannibalism. So I know that uh, it was pretty uh, pretty bleak today. A lot of uh, a lot of unhappy stories. So I didn't want to leave you hanging. And I thought I would uh, I thought I would share something with you that I enjoy every Halloween. So everyone is familiar with the Monster Mash but you might not be familiar with the original song. So let me play for you all the original Monster Mash by Leo Carpazzi. You may have heard this on Comedy Bang Bang, but if you haven't, enjoy. And if you have, enjoy again. I, I never get tired of this. 
year after year. Uh, my wife does, but I think it's great. All right, so I know my other show, I'll play more music. Uh, and I wasn't going to do that on this episode, but it's Halloween. So there's a rare, rare treat. So happy Halloween, everyone. I won't have a show before Halloween. So this is the last one. Check your candy. Don't have a fake noose. Be safe. And, uh, stay alive for the next show. Thank you to hats for coming in tonight and helping me, uh, get the show up. Thank you all for listening. Please share. Find the podcast on Twitter at this is po two. Uh, feel free to send me anything there that uh, no longer exists or that we've been lied to uh, that never existed, and I will gladly update my list. So that is it for me. Have a safe, happy Halloween. Check your candy. Don't go out alone. Don't pretend to hang yourself for a Halloween decoration. And if you're putting a pumpkin out. Make sure it's not accessible by deer. All right. Thanks, everybody. Now, please enjoy Leo Carpazzi's original Monster Mash. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly... To my surprise, his trousers dropped right to the floor. With his bottom bare, he ran to the door. I said, Frankenstein, what's gotten into you? He said, my dick is hard and I need to screw. He did the fuck. He did the monster fuck. The monster fuck. It was a graveyard fuck. He did the fuck. That monster sucked and fucked. He did the fuck. He did the monster fuck. From my laboratory, I heard quite the racket. Deep in the castle, the vampires jacked it. The zombies all fucked in the graveyard grass. Wolfman wolfed down Frankenstein's ass. They did the fuck. They did the monster fuck. The monster fuck. It was a graveyard fuck. They did the fuck. Those monsters sucked and fucked. They did the fuck. They did the monster fuck. The beasts all fucked as the orgy spread. Bigfoot gave the headless horseman head. Swamp thing jacked off in the castle moat. While Dracula gagged from the jizz in his throat. The fucking was wet, there was spooge like mad. Igor decided to fuck his own dad. The mummy let out a horny moan. When Medusa's bare tits turned his dick to stone. They did the fuck. They did the monster fuck. The monster fuck. It was a graveyard they fuck. They did the fuck. Those monsters sucked and fucked. They did the fuck. They did the monster fuck. Wow. But Frankenstein's pride was the biggest slut. Wow. Dracula got balls deep in her butt. Wow. She got titty fucked by a giant spider. Wow. Jizz made the streaks in her hair much whiter. Wow. She fucked every monster, come one, come all. Wow. Her three holes were filled like a bowling ball. Wow. And while monsters all fucked his undead bride, wow. Frankenstein just jacked off and cried. Now, fuck. now you can monster fuck. The monster fuck. And do the graveyard the fuck. fuck. Those monsters suck and they now fuck. You fuck. Now you can monster fuck. Wow.